Well, good morning. You turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're there at the end this morning. Just to remind you, as you turn there over the last several sermons in chapter 3, we've really looked at the process of sanctification in every part of life. Um, The riches of, of wisdom and knowledge, the grace that is in Christ for every part of our lives, how he reconciles all things to himself, God does in Christ. We went further last time into the ways that Christ reconciles all things, sanctifies and and reigns over all of life from the rule of Christ in the body of Christ, the church, our relationships with one another, to the rule of Christ over the home and the family. We saw how Christ redeems and and reconciles and sanctifies the marriage relationship and then the parent-child relationship. He, He takes the conflict out, the futility out, And restores the fruitfulness, making them a a picture of his gospel and a canvas of his saving, sanctifying grace. And so we come to the last relationship that would have been in the home in the first century during the time of Paul's writing. Here at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, which is bondservants and masters. Or as I think we will see as its derivative today, employees and employers. Seeing the blood-bought rule of Christ over the church, over the family, the home. Now we see the rule of Christ over and in the workplace. And this is all really an application of that, that general exhortation that Paul gave to us in verse 17 of chapter 3 in Colossians. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whether at church or at home or at work... In public or in private, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So in each case, the the ways of living Paul describes in word or deed are only possible in a person who is doing them in gratitude to God through Jesus Christ. It's only possible for the one who is raised with Christ there at the beginning of chapter 3. United to Jesus by faith, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, transformed by the gospel of peace with God through Jesus Christ. So this text today isn't just one about working hard or doing good at work. It's working as only a Christian can in and through Christ from the riches of Christ as he is conformed to the character of Christ. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you might be a little disappointed. I I was at the beginning of my study this week. Um, that we are in this text this morning. For many of us, I think the weekend and the Lord's Day is our time to get away from work. Right? You don't typically come to church to engage in shop talk. Right? You want to talk about something else, something better. You want to rest, to put it out of your mind. You might feel like the work week is something that you have to get through so you can enjoy real life. Right? Your life begins in the evenings or on the weekends with family, with fellow believers. That's when you really enjoy Life and serve Christ and think about spiritual things and worship and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Everything else is this sort of daily grind that you get to to get to the things that really matter. And I think what the Spirit of God is telling us in His Word this morning is that all of life matters, all our work matters for the kingdom and the glory of God and His people. All work, every vocation, whatever we do, it all matters. There should be no gap in our enjoyment of Christ, in our devotional life, in our focus upon the things above where Christ is from Sunday morning service to Monday morning work, our our week beginning. We know in Ephesians that 
Christ, that in Christ God has redeemed us for good works. He's created you anew in Christ Jesus for good works, which he set apart from before the foundation of the world. And those good works spiritually cannot be separated from your daily work physically. Your job, your vocation, that's to be one of the arenas in which you do those good works that God has set out for you to do in Christ. So in your employment, as with everything else that you do in Christ, you're to work out your salvation in fear and in trembling as God works in you to will and to do to his good pleasure, conforming you to the image of his son. God gave you your job to sanctify you and make you like Christ. If we had a um, sort of a short blurb of our text today. So I'm going to read this text here um, at the end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, and, and ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll dig in. So starting in verse 22 of chapter 3, Paul says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that, you, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back. For the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Father, I thank you for the joy and the comfort that it is to gather together with your people on your day. Lord, as we can look at one another and see the, the mighty deeds that you have done in us, in our are continuing to do in us and through us, Lord. The, the trophies of grace that testify to the power of your gospel, the sufficiency of your Son as our Savior, His authority as our Lord. God, I pray that this text would just be another encouragement to us, a reminder for us, an exhortation for us, Lord, to walk out what is already true of us in Christ, because you have transferred us from the, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. I pray that... Lord, as we read your word and hear your word, as we believe your word by your Holy Spirit, that we would be knit together in love for one another and love for Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So I say employment and employees here when talking about Paul's audience, but we really need to take a look at who Paul is addressing with the commands here. The first word in our text is bond servants, and that's Really, I think, a diplomatic way of translating that. Uh, most English translations will do something like that. Um, translate that word that way from the Greek, which is really the plural of doulos. It's slaves. Slaves and masters. Paul writes, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Literally, your lords according to the flesh. And that seems a bit more extreme than employee-employer, Right? We looked at a similar passage in 1 Peter a couple months ago with what I would say is a less stark word for servants, oikotes, meaning house servants, someone who is more willingly employed in the home than on something like a contract basis. There's no such concept here with this word doulos. It always means slave in the New Testament. There's no other word possible for this. It's a word of bondage, of ownership and captivity, often as a result of being conquered by another people in a military operation, which is likely in the militant background of the city of Colossae. This was a widespread practice in the ancient world. It's estimated that in Rome alone, that 80 to 90% of the population were either slaves or former slaves. 
that at any time in the Roman Empire, one of two people was a slave. This is a vast reality that Paul is writing about. Roman citizens, were con- they considered work beneath them, and they would acquire slaves to do all the work in the house or outside of it. So many of these slaves would have actually had professional occupations like we see today. They would have been property managers, physicians, teachers, accountants. But it wasn't the loss who gained from the livelihood. It was the master, the lord, the owner who had complete authority over the slave. This is truly slavery here. Even in 1 Peter, Peter says that the more domestic house servants could be subject to beatings and harsh treatment. Many from those indentured families would be born into this slavery without a convention to seek freedom. Which might provoke us to ask, why is there no condemnation of the practice from Paul here? If this is how Christ reconciles all of life, shouldn't the first thing he say, slaves, seek your freedom. Masters, let your slaves go. Is the Bible pro-slavery, as we often hear today? And I think there's a few reasons why we don't see Paul take a more adversarial position towards slave masters here. One, as we mentioned, was just the economic reality of the world, the necessity of it. To insist on immediate abolishment would consign thousands to starvation, to death. It would result in chaos, upheaval of society, which would run counter to Paul's whole purpose in writing for Christians to this letter. in this letter. To promote peaceable gospel living for the sake, not of upturning society, but of sanctifying the Christian and saving souls for the kingdom of God. So Paul, or even Peter in 1 Peter, they don't write strong condemnation of it in those letters, but neither do they champion it. Nowhere in the Bible is this practice offered as the ideal or even a good thing. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes of enslavers in the same breath as homosexuals and liars, anything else contrary to sound doctrine, which would lead someone to hell. So I think you see... In places like Colossians, the apostle writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the most loving way possible in dealing with this reality. He encourages faithful Christian love for both masters and servants here, acknowledging God's sovereign providence in their position while proclaiming the gospel, which with its implications would eventually lead to slavery's abolishment altogether in many parts of the world. There's the revealed truth even in Colossians, that there's no slave or free in the community of the saints, for all are one in Christ. The apostles write in a way that transforms this, even this master-slave relationship. Wherever the gospel takes root and spreads, and the gospel transforms the lives of all who believe, resulting in the inevitable end of the practice of slavery. So Paul, in that manner, with the particular emphasis in this section of his letter on living in Christ, in obedience for the sake of Christ-likeness and a witness for Christ to the unbelieving world, he writes to foster Christ-like faithfulness for Christians who find themselves slaves. And the masters who even are believers now, who now find themselves responsible for their fellow brothers and sisters, their well-being. Paul urges them to be just and fair and compassionate. There were masters and slaves worshiping in the same church in Colossae. We see that even in the letter of Philemon. Um, where Onesimus has run away from his master and Paul is writing to reconcile them. So Paul's not writing to commend slavery, but he is commanding faithful service for Christians out of joy in Christ and fear of the Lord, no matter how humble or hard your situation is. No matter what your earthly vocation is, that for the sake of the gospel of our Lord and the souls of all men, slaves are to consider even their masters as worthy of all honor. He says that in 1 Timothy. 
so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So the reverent and gracious service of Christian slaves was a witness in the home of many pagan Roman households of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And in that sense, I think Paul's, Paul's section here addressed to slaves and lords or servants and masters is just as relevant for us today. Right? If even a Christian slavery is ordained by God and a believer has a responsibility to submit to God's providence through that and faithfully serve Christ in that for the sake of the gospel, I think we may say the same for every earthly occupation in which a Christian may find himself today. Because if God ordains even a slave-driven economy and has a purpose for his people as slaves in which they can be faithful ambassadors for Christ, do you not think that God intends that for every earthly occupation for a Christian? Every job, all economies. Paul essentially calls all of us doulos here in a second. We are all slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that was Paul's favorite title for himself, slave of Christ. And and even though we live and work in what we would call a free market, we still have hierarchies of authority today. If you're employed, you have authority placed over you, a supervisor, a manager, a CEO. Even if you're self-employed, you still have responsibility toward those who contract you for your services, for your goods. You have a responsibility to them. In that sense, anyone who works in any sort of capacity and bears responsibility towards someone else is in the position that Paul is addressing of a slave. Of a worker. All work is service, right? And all Christian workers then are to take the position in some form of a servant. This is really the way God has designed work to work. And in our culture, you are free as a Christian to leave any employment and seek a better situation as God wills. But no matter where you work, when you are working there, Paul's instructions here about the way that a Christian works applies to you. Even if you're not actively employed in the labor market, we're all slaves, servants of God, with a master in heaven, Paul says at the beginning of Colossians 4, who has all authority and is due all submission and respect, all our faithful laborers. We are all laborers in the kingdom of God, and therefore we are all servants. And this passage has something for all of us. And I think if there is any word more offensive to our modern sensibilities than the word submit or obey, it is the word servant. Right? Or even in a true sense of slave, it's even more offensive. There's a reason why our English Bibles use the word servant or bondservant instead of slave on this side of, of the Civil War. Even though we know humility and service are virtues as Christians, we don't like to think of ourselves that way. Or if we do like to think of ourselves as servants or slaves, we're fine doing that as long as no one else thinks of us that way. Right? As Ronnie Qualls would always say, it's it's... It's easy to consider yourself a servant until someone actually treats you like one. That's when it's not so enjoyable. Not only that, it's offensive in our culture if someone just treats us like employees, isn't it? The word employee has all but been replaced in many workplaces. It's not used in my workplace. The the word employee is too demeaning. It's too servile. There are no employees, no subordinates. If you have to use a word, it's coworker. Always say coworker or team member, not employee, not subordinate. Not only that, the term work itself is something of a dirty word to our culture. Right? I'll ask people, even after this service, what are you doing tomorrow? Right? I get a day off or something like that. Someone else might say, oh, I have to work. I've never actually heard someone say, oh, I get to go to work tomorrow. I am excited to go back to work Monday morning. 
An attitude, I think, to which the Christian must remind himself with Scripture that work is actually a good thing. Right? Remember that work is not a feature of the fall. It didn't come about after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Work did not begin when sin entered the world. It preceded it. Work is good in God's design. Work is one of the things that God called very good when he created Adam in his image and gave Adam dominion over all the earth, put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, and then created Eve to be a helper to him in that work. And since work is a good thing created by God, and we are, as image bearers of God, created to work as he did in creation, it's not something that's removed by the victory of Christ. It's something that's redeemed. It's something that is reconciled to God in Christ. We will work in glory. Did you know that? We'll work in the new heavens and the new earth. I'm very sorry if that upends someone's entire eschatology here. But we will work. God has designed us to work that way. God is always working, Jesus says. God created us to work, but as with everything else, our sin corrupted God's creation. Our sin and the curse of our sin brought futility to creation and to work. Right? God says in Genesis 3 to Adam who sinned, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Not a whole lot of us. Some of us are in agriculture here. And you actually see that curse directly played out in all of your work. There's futility in creation. But no matter what your vocation is, you encounter that futility that's there in work, right? It's, it's inefficient. It's burdensome. It's marked by sin. It's tainted and cursed by the fall. It's marked by conflict between people and distrust and injustice. It's marked by dishonest and lazy employees and abusive or exploitative employers. This is part of the curse of sin. And yet in Christ, our work too is reconciled. There's still futility in work today in a relative sense. The ground is still cursed. This present world is still fallen. Creation still groans, awaiting a new heavens and a new earth where work will not be futile. But yet in Christ, the one who works in the world bears much fruit. Your work is fruitful, Christian. It's spiritually fruitful. First of all, God has placed you in your present occupation day by day according to his Sovereign grace to make you more like his son and to manifest his gospel and love for sinners. So your work, though in a fallen world, is never futile. Your work in Christ as a janitor or a banker or a builder or a doctor or whatever you do is eternally significant. And even right now, it's meaningful in Christ. Your work is a gift of God's grace to you and to others, a means of molding you into the image of his son and is meant to be enjoyed by the one who hopes in Christ. Your work as a Christian should be radically changed by the gospel. If you were to present the gospel to someone in your workplace, would the way that you work support that message that you are proclaiming? Is there a radical change in your work, in the way that you work? It's in the day-to-day workings of your life that the gospel renews you, or you have not been changed by the gospel. The gospel is not just for Sundays. The gospel is for Monday through Friday, and even Saturdays too if you have to work overtime. The gospel is for all of life. 
And in our work, we take the position in humility and in obedience as slaves, becoming like the one who humbled himself and took the form of a slave. Our form. That, that form of a slave is our form as human beings. And became obedient to the will of the Father in everything, even to the point of death on a cross. And he has now been highly exalted and given the name above every name, which is Lord. That's the name above every name. Whether slave as the Colossians or or free as the Americans, we are to have this mind, which is ours in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Philippians. And to work in a way that shows this gospel truth. I think Paul gives us just two main points there in the passage concerning how we work to the glory of God under the rule of Christ in our workplace. Firstly, the way that we work as those in Christ in verses 22 and 23. And lastly, why we work this way in Christ from verse 24 to the first verse of chapter 4. And there, starting in verse 22, we have the way that we are to work as those in Christ. This is Paul's word to slaves. He says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So the first imperative there, the first command word is obey. Same word is used just a sentence earlier in addressing children in respect to their parents. That's not the same exact relationship, but the manner of the obedience is the same. The word obey at its root gives the sense of listening to, to hear or to heed. It's listening intensely, intently, closely, conforming to a command. It's it's readiness to receive the instruction or direction and then immediately putting it into practice. It has to do both with the actions and with the preparation to obey, the attitude of obedience. As with the command of children, there's no qualification here on the command. It doesn't say obey good masters or obey just masters, obey reasonable masters, obey believing masters. Obey who? Your lords or your masters according to the flesh. Obey in what? Everything. That's, that's expansive. Everything they tell you to do in the scope of their earthly authority without contradicting the authority of the Lord of heaven and earth. That's comprehensive. It, it encompasses Everything For a slave, it literally encompasses everything. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, it encompasses that. Whatever your master requires you to do in your work, the word for obey there is in the active present tense. It's constant, continuous, active obedience to the instructions of your master or earthly authority and whatever they give you to do. So there's nothing too menial. There's nothing too small to escape this command. There's nothing too difficult or large to escape this command. There's nothing too demeaning or low for a Christian slave to disobey this command. The slave doesn't pick and choose the jobs that are beneath him to do, the jobs that he wants to do, the jobs that he is good enough to do, the jobs that are not good enough for him to do. Instead, he readily does whatever is assigned to him and whatever else may be required or left to do. Now, there's some difference in our our workplace today, right? We have job descriptions. We want to know what we're doing before we get into it. We have pay grades. We have organizational charts. We have levels of authority. We have direct reports, supervisors. But the attitude of humility, this readiness to obey that Paul commands for Christian workers today is no different. If we're to have this same mind of humility as our Lord, who took the form of a slave and obeyed in everything the will of the Father, submitting to harsh treatment, 
To suffer and die on a cross for us? Is there anything apart from sin that is beneath the Christian to do in service ever? Is there anything too small for the Christian to do? You want to see the most Christ-like person in the workplace? Look for the person who consistently does what no one else wants to do. For the one that is constantly doing what no one else wants to do so they don't have to. Look at the person who, who will take on the thankless task. Pitch in on the menial jobs. They don't have to do according to their job description. Look at the person who puts others first in everything and does what even they don't want to do so others around them don't have to. The Christ-like worker never says, I don't get paid to do that. Right? Or I don't do that. Right? That's not in my job description. The Christian worker does what he's told in everything as long as it does not require him to disobey his heavenly master. There's nothing beneath the Christian to do in service to others because there's nothing that was beneath Christ to do in service for those who are his. We understand here that both master on earth, the employer, and the master in heaven should not be separated from each other no matter what the master on earth is like in character. Master in verse 22 is the same word that is translated seven times in this passage. Kurios, it's Lord or Master. It's twice in reference to earthly masters, five times in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. The repetition of the word kurios should tell us that the authority that is vested in earthly masters is the same authority that is in Christ. Because we know that as the Lord who is in heaven, all authority is in him. And therefore, any authority which exists over us on the earth is from him. So Christ commands us as the head of the church and the Lord of all earthly lords to obey in everything those who are our lords according to the flesh. So how we obey our earthly masters, our employers, is very important to God. It's an essential witness to the gospel of our heavenly Lord and an extension of his lordship in the workplace. Our our obedience to our masters on earth in, in part fulfills our obedience to our master in heaven. It's the same authority. It's delegated authority, but it is Christ's authority. And it doesn't matter how unworthy an earthly authority is in character, in conduct, in competency, in fairness. If they bear any legitimate authority, they are worthy, Paul says in 1 Timothy, of receiving honor and receiving obedience. Because if there is any legitimate authority they wield, it's not ultimately theirs, it's Christ, and Christ is worthy of all of our obedience. So Christian, if you work under authority, you work under Christ. And if you work under Christ, there's no command, there's no requirement that is beneath you to obey. In that sense, to disobey your employer, to refuse to listen to an earthly master, is here to refuse to listen to Christ. How you respect and obey any authority on earth, whether government, employer, police officer, professor, parent, any authority that exists, how you obey it, how you treat that authority, what your attitude is toward that authority, whether or not you complain about that authority, says a lot about how worthy you think Christ is of your obedience. In fact, it says much more about what you think of Christ than what you think of that earthly authority. Simply put, you can't claim to be a servant of Christ if you could never consider yourself a servant of an authority that Christ has placed over you. One of the first marks of a person who is not right with Christ is the problem they have with authority. Because it's Christ's authority. He is Lord. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. 
And that's a hard thing to get over, I think, in our culture specifically. We have a view of freedom in America that often borders on anti-Christianity. To be free in our minds means to be free from authority. Like financially, legally, morally, free from any outside influence, free from anyone telling us what to do. Right? When it comes to our work, just be honest, the most fulfilling realities we can think of is either self-employment or retirement. I'm going to work for myself so no one else is telling me what to do. I want to retire so I don't have to listen to anyone else tell me what to do ever again. The Christian slave in Colossae could never know that kind of freedom. There was no retirement plan. There was no self-employment. The Christian slave in Colossae would never know that kind of freedom, but he would be free in Christ. In fact, he would be free from the slavery of sin, the sins of rebellion and disobedience and pride. He would be free not from the slavery of earthly masters, but the slavery and sin of sin and death in the Lord Jesus Christ, which would tempt him to disobey or to rebel or to complain. And that freedom would make a Christian slave eager and ready to obey in all things not pertaining to sin. And that comes to bear not only in what we do, but in how we do it. Because to truly obey, Paul says, means that you can't merely go through the outward motions of obedience. No command in Scripture just concerns your hand without touching your heart. It's not about simply what you get done in your work externally as a Christian. It's about what's going on in your heart. Right? Paul says, obey in everything. And then he explains what that means with a denial and an affirmation. He says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Those first two descriptions are pretty directly translated from the Greek. To do eye service is to serve only when there are eyes to see. You're only active in obedience, in fulfilling your duties when an authority is present to watch over you. When the boss walks by, you start working hard. When the supervisor comes in, you get off your phone. That's an example of eye service. When the master is present, you obey. When the master is absent, you don't. Now, that's a problem for many reasons spiritually. But chief among them is this. To work only when earthly masters are present is to reject or suppress the truth that you have a heavenly master who's always present. If the knowledge that your earthly employer or authority is watching is enough to get you to work, but the knowledge that your heavenly Lord is watching is not enough to get you to work, who do you really fear? Who do you really serve? Who is your master? Not the Lord. You don't fear the Lord. You fear man. You are a people pleaser, not a God fearer. If you want to know how much you fear the Lord in your daily life, look at what you do when there's no one present but the Lord. I think that's one of the the big problems, even in evangelical Christianity in the workplace. There's not enough fear of the Lord. The Lord's mastery is not enough to compel you to work. And if there's no fear of the Lord, there's no love of the Lord either. That also means that the work that we engage in as Christians should never be half-hearted, regardless of whether the employer is appreciative or deserving or present. Paul says, willing work as a believer is done with a sincere heart, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Willing service with a sincere heart means that the effort, the quantity, the quality of your work does not depend on whether your employer sees you. You aren't slacking off on the task given to you when there's no one around. You don't cut corners in your work. You don't make yourself look busy when you're 
supervisor or the company owner walks by. You aren't playing the role of a hypocrite, presenting one thing outwardly to man and another thing differently in your heart. That's external service, as this is also translated. You maintain your reputation as a good worker by saying the right things to the right people, by only taking on tasks that will bring you recognition. It also means you aren't taking advantage of an employer's trust, especially if your employer is a fellow believer. You should not expect preferential treatment if your employer is a believer. Right? In fact, for, for Paul in 1 Timothy, that means something else. He says, let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. A Christian who works with a sincere heart is the same employee, the same worker, regardless of who sees him. Or what task he's given, or what recognition is given to him. Because Christians are not to be hypocrites. They're to be holy. They should be honest and straightforward in their attitudes, their speech, and their work. They're to be this way because they are not ultimately trying to please man, but rather they are rendering their service in the presence of Christ. He is always present. Now, the, the omnipresence of Christ shouldn't make us fear retribution from God in our work because of how we work as believers, though we may receive discipline upon a time as the Lord chastises us for our disobedience. But it should motivate us because of our delight in God to work in a way that pleases Him through Christ, that is worthy of Him, who has given us the work that we have to do. The fear of the Lord is not just a bigger version of the fear of man. It's not people-pleasing for our heavenly boss who is watching and might punish us. The fear of the Lord, the knowledge that Christ sees, that he is present with us, that we live and work every moment before the face of God is knowledge that for the Christian does not produce a fear of condemnation, but a reverent, fearful joy in his work. Our earthly masters might leave us on our own, but our Lord Jesus Christ is with us in his work. And he is there by his spirit to strengthen us and to equip us to do all that he's laid out for us to do. The active presence of the Lord Jesus Christ should motivate you to work in a way that you can enjoy his presence. The ever presence of Christ the Lord should make the believer not just a consistent worker, but a content worker. A thankful worker, a happy worker, a sincere worker. And in in verse 23, a wholehearted worker. Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. The phrase is literally work from the heart or work from the soul. You might hear the Shema there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. This is work that arises from the depths of your being. It's not just actions, but attitude and affections. It's an expression of your love for Christ. It's work that is controlled by the love of Christ. It speaks to a singleness of heart, a wholeness of the inner person, right? Physically, that means you're totally focused, all there, sincere, not having your body one place and your mind someplace else. I heard someone quote Jim Elliott the other day, the missionary. He says, wherever you are, be all there. That's what sincere work is. The Christian slave or employee is always there at work. He's not reluctant in action, sluggish in effort, sour in attitude. He's all there. Wholeness of heart also speaks to the inner person morally. In Job, Job was perfect or whole of heart. 
He was single of heart, it says in Job. He was complete in integrity. He couldn't be bought or sold. He was wholly united in heart to love and to listen to and fear God and his work. So the sincere-hearted, wholehearted Christian has one aim in coming to work. To work in such a way that makes much of Christ and honors and enjoys him. In quality, in energy, in productivity, in integrity. It's not external service, not eye service. It's soul work. Christian work is soul work. God has designed that kind of work to issue forth from a soul that is satisfied in Christ. And and also to be fulfilling to your soul. Not because work itself fulfills us, but the work that is wholly set on honoring Christ above, regardless of who is present thus. I mean, think about it. Have you ever noticed that when you really set your mind to work heartily, what happens to your work day? It disappears, right? Time flies. You feel the pleasure of accomplishment of doing what God has set your hand to do and doing it well. That, that can be self-satisfaction, but in the right way, it's not satisfaction of self. It's pleasure in working as for the Lord. You're receiving, in one sense, an immediate reward that God has designed you to receive when you work so as to please Him. The Olympian Eric Liddell said, When I run, I feel His pleasure. He wasn't being loosey-goosey with that. He was doing what God had designed him to do and doing it well and working hard. It doesn't really matter whether you're running a triathlon or digging a ditch or balancing a budget. If you do it for the Lord, you feel his pleasure. It's what he gives you by doing the work that he gave you and does in you. The word there for work in verse 23 is is ergazome, from the same root as a word that Paul has already used in chapter 1 to speak of working or toiling or struggling in the ministry with all his energia, all Christ's energy that he powerfully works within me, all his working that he works within me. To work in God's way as a Christian is in one sense to do no work at all on your own. It's to work with God's working that he works within you. It's an easy yoke. It's a light burden. It's to rest in Christ even as you work. It is to receive all his energy, all his provision. As Hudson Taylor, the missionary, wrote, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. There's no futility in that kind of work. There's only pleasure and enjoyment of Christ and fulfillment. How much strength and fulfillment and joy we forfeit daily by trying to avoid or mitigate or skate by or cut corners on the work that God has given us to do. To do it half-heartedly. Instead of working eagerly for the sake of the Lord, not for men. Work in God's way. It, it's humble and obedient. It's sincere. It fears the Lord. It enjoys His active presence with His people. It's hearty work. It is work that is hard but light. Toil but powerfully worked within you by God. It's fulfilling. And it ultimately has nothing to do with the kind of work that you're doing, the place of work that you're in, the authorities over you in your work. It's about Christ the Lord. That brings us to our second point in this passage, why we work this way in Christ. Because working as to the Lord means we do it knowing something in this passage. That's the transition there in verse um, 24. He says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. I think Paul gives two reasons which would motivate you to work in this way. Firstly, there's the believer's calling. 
He's already commanded us to work as to the Lord in verse 23. And in verse 24b, he says we not only work as if for the Lord, but we actually serve the Lord Christ. That's a motivation there. No matter who your earthly master is, when you serve him, you serve Christ. No matter what your work is, when you do it, you serve Christ. It's all for Christ. This is a direct reiteration of verse 17. Doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's for his glory in the world through us. It's all soli deo gloria. For God's glory alone. That's the purpose of your work. That's your calling, Christian. Your ultimate employer is the Lord. Your ultimate calling to glorify him. I think we believe that in salvation, right? We, we will celebrate that at the end of this month on Reformation Day. This doctrine was recovered by the church at that time. The reformers set forth this truth from scripture, from scripture that God acts in salvation ultimately for his glory alone. And if we believe that, that God redeems the whole person for his glory, then we must know that all of life is redeemed to be for his glory alone. Working obediently, sincerely, wholeheartedly is not a gospel issue per se. It doesn't affect your salvation, but it must be affected by it. It must issue forth from your justification by faith in Christ. It's from that understanding in the Reformation which came what used to be called the Protestant work ethic or the Calvinist work ethic. I would hear this statement all the time um, when I was in less Calvinistic circles, right, which is work like an Arminian and sleep like a Calvinist. No. Work like a Calvinist and sleep like a Calvinist. Work like someone who understands the gospel or the doctrines of grace. It's why every time you see a a revival take place in an area or a nation, one of the first things that is transformed outside the walls of the church is the marketplace. It's the gospel fruit that saved the American colonies from starvation with the arrival of some of the Puritans. It's that gospel fruit which changed the shape of missions and the marketplace in the Great Awakening in New England. It's that gospel fruit which was first noticed by the unbelieving world in the Welsh revival in Wales. When the miners who had come under the lordship of Christ were compelled by the love of Christ to no longer do the minimum possible in their labor, but to do more than what was required. There was an immediate difference. They didn't realize the mines could be that profitable. You could get that much ore out of the mines. All you needed were Christians there in the workplace. Now, I think it's a question that bears asking, would we as Protestants, as Reformed Christians, as Evangelical Christians, have the same report of us today? What does your work ethic say about your Savior and your Lord, about your salvation In your Savior and your Lord. You bring your faith to the workplace every day. Whether you say anything about the gospel or not. It's a presentation of Christ. Or it's a slandering of Christ. And I think part of our prayer. As we approach work every day. Should be in that psalm that we read in worship. Lord let not those who hope in you. Be put to shame because of me. Let not the Gentiles slander Christ and his people because of me. Simply put, an unbeliever should be able to look at a Christian and see the rule and reality of Christ in the way that you work. A Christian slave or worker or employee should be the very best worker or employee that there is in the office or the workplace. Now, you may not be the brightest. You may not be the most skilled. 
Not many mighty, not many noble, not many great in this world were called. But in Christ, you should be the hardest worker with the best attitude, the one who never causes division or conflict in the workplace because of ego. You should be the most honest. You should be filled with integrity. Your boss, whether a believer or an unbeliever, should never have to worry about you doing what you're supposed to be doing or not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Like Potiphar with Joseph, that employer should be able to trust you with anything and everything. And even if he's not around, because your Lord is there. Your unbelieving coworkers should be able to look at you in your work and wonder, what is it with this person? They're always content. They're always working. They're always serving. They're never slacking. They're never dishonest with their boss or with anyone else. Steve Lawson puts it, even your unbelieving boss should be able to look at you and think, I need more Christians in this company. That's a witness for the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Wherever you work and whatever you do, that glorifies the Lord and serves Him. Do you not think gospel conversations would be easier in the workplace if we worked that way? I have conversations with many of you regularly. I myself included. Man, I really would love to get to the gospel with this person. Maybe the first examination that you should do is, how am I working in front of this person? What does my work say? If I were to present Christ to someone and say, and he's changed my life, would they look at you and say, really? What was it like before this? They should be able to say, yeah, I see that. I see that in your work. And if you're truly serving the Lord Christ in whatever you do, how is that for adding significance to your work? For meaning to your job. We all want to know that we're making a difference, right? We all want to know that we're making an impact day to day. It might seem like your job serves no purpose whatsoever. It has no meaning. It has no fulfillment. But you serve the master in heaven. You serve the Lord of heaven and earth with whatever you do. You serve the creator and sustainer of all that exists. You serve the Lord Christ. I don't know if there's any idea that's more defeating for the Christian worker in our culture than the concept of the dream job, right? The dream job. Do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, right? That's nonsense. You know, the, the second that you find that dream job, you'll be daydreaming of another dream job. It won't be enough. There is no such thing. Your fulfillment in life, Christian, is not meant to come from a job. Your significance and meaning and identity is not meant to come from what you do, but the one for whom you do it. It's not about loving a job. It's about doing that job for the one whom you love. It's so common to spend years wondering if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. If that job that you don't like is really God's will for you. If there's a calling that you're missing out on. It's not about doing a job that you love. It's about doing whatever job you find to do in love for Christ. Your work may be a struggle, but if you work for the Lord, it will be a struggle with energy that God powerfully works within you. So your purpose, Christian, is not to find the most meaningful job, the most impactful career, the most fulfilling position. It is, as Paul says, in whatever your hand finds to do, by God's sovereign will, to work in a way that pleases Christ. So that you may enjoy Christ and glorify Him before those in the workplace who do not know Christ, but will be exposed to Him in the way that you work. That's what makes work meaningful. That's your identity. It's not what you do, but for whom you do it. 
right? The common question when you're introducing yourself, the first question you ask, what do you do? And you're going to make a lot of preconceived judgments about that person based on their job, right? In fact, you have a lot of conceptions about your own identity based on your job, your salary. I might encourage you, next time someone asks you what you do, I serve the Lord Christ. Now let me tell you what division I'm in. But I serve the Lord Christ. That's my job. That's my calling. The calling of the Lord in um, the workplace is another truth recovered in the Reformation, right? Even the word vocation at the time of Martin Luther, this word of, of worthiness of a career or calling, it was applied specifically to the priests and to the nuns. That was the worthwhile calling. That was the sacred employment. But it's not just the pastor or the minister who's called by God for the sake of the kingdom. Every occupation in which a Christian works by the providence of God is a divine calling for his kingdom. It has inherent value. It has inherent significance providing for other image bearers of God. It has particular value for the advancement of God's gospel in the world. Your job was given to you so you can provide for your family as a Christian should. Provide for the needs of the saints as a Christian should. Partner in the work of the ministry as a Christian should. And so that you can participate in the work of the ministry as an ambassador for Christ to the people who work around you. That unfulfilling job is a divine calling if you work for the Lord. Secondly, Paul adds to the Christian's calling the encouragement of his compensation. In verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Think about how surprising that verse would be for a Christian slave. No income, no assets, no possessions, nothing to pass on to children, no inheritance. You're a slave on the earth. But Paul says if you're in Christ, you will have a glorious reward, a glorious inheritance. You will share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You have the hope of Christ in you, the hope of glory. You may be a slave, but you will receive the inheritance of a son in the presence of Christ. Even now, you might feel yourself undervalued, underpaid, overlooked, passed by in the workplace. You may be those things. You may not be of any value to your employer at all. They might be able to replace you like that. It's in response to that kind of frustration that many in our culture have started trying to pay back their employers for their perceived lack of compensation, right? trying to do the bare minimum to get by at work. They try to get all they can from their workplace while putting in as little as possible. I I would love it if I never hear the phrases quiet quitting and act your wage ever again. If they aren't going to pay you to give your best effort, then don't give it, people say. Paul reminds us it's not the earthly master we ultimately serve. It's not the earthly master who will ultimately pay us out. It's Christ. We have an inheritance, and not just any inheritance, the inheritance. There's a definite article. This is a hope and a possession laid up for us in heaven, Paul has said, kept for us. Peter says, undefiled, unfading, imperishable. This is what Paul calls in Romans a weight of glory, which is not worth comparing to our present condition, our present troubles. Some well-known commentators and preachers, they seize on the word reward to talk about this verse in reference to a judgment of a believer's life and work. The reward or the inheritance being a direct result of what we do in the body, that at the last day Christ will evaluate our work and our labors and will commend us or chastise us for what we did in the body. 
that we will either have a, a reward for our good works or we will lose this reward for not doing our work well. Dr. Lawson even goes so far as to say we are saved by grace, but we will be judged by works. There's a judgment of sorts, an evaluation of every deed that's done in the body. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We'll have to give an account. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says in reference to the ministry that each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, but it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. There are, I think, degrees of reward taught there for the Christian that don't crown us. They crown Christ because of Christ's work in us. And though Christians will never be subject to eternal punishment, there will be an evaluation of your work. That should sober you. That spreadsheet that you prepared will in one sense be evaluated by the Lord Christ. Everything we do in the body will be disclosed. Everything you did in your employment, every word that you spoke, this judgment will even disclose the motives of your hearts. Christ will examine and expose your work on the last day and he will either be found to bring glory and honor and praise to his name or it will burn up as so much waste, so much stubble. But... I think that misses the point here in Colossians. Reward does, not, reward does mean wages. It means compensation. But you can't earn an inheritance. It's received. It's inherited. And it's not an unsure inheritance. Paul says we are to know that we will receive it from the Lord. Actually, that knowledge that we will receive it comes before the actual work taking place in Paul's thinking. It is certain. It's not dependent on our works. It's not a person-by-person inheritance. It's not an inheritance. It is the inheritance, the definite article there. The point is not that we work to obtain the inheritance, but that we work because we will obtain it. It is a reward, not not because we've earned it, but because it will be more than enough to compensate for all of our labors, all of our troubles, all our lack of compensation in this life when we do good and suffer for it, when we are faithful no matter the cost in our work. The next verse speaks to the judgment of the wrongdoer. In verse 25, he says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Dr. Lawson and others again apply this to the Christian slave. I think it cannot apply to the Christian. The phrase wrongdoer, literally no righteousness doing unrighteousness. It's not the Christian who fears this judgment on the last day. It's the wrongdoer, the evildoer, the unbeliever. And God is not partial, whether he be a slave or he be the highest master on this earth. He is not a respecter of persons. He's not partial. We're called to work with integrity, with zeal, with effort, with consistency, with contentment, no matter what our compensation, no matter how we're treated by others, because we have an inheritance. And Because God does see and he will comfort us. Because God has already blessed us eternally and infinitely in Christ. So don't act your wage. Live out your inheritance. That's Paul's point there. Christian, know that God will bring justice. As one commentator puts it, leave your wrongs, that is the wrong done to you, in the hands of Christ to put to rights. Christ will judge. You are to serve with gladness. Christ will pay back and comfort and compensate. You are to live in light of the fact that should you never receive your due, 
in this world for your work, you will receive the due of a son because of Christ's work in glory. So the inheritance is a reward, not in the sense that it is your due for your work in the body, but rather that the inheritance is more than enough to compensate you for any lack. It's far better than any wages you could have received in this life. It's far greater than any store of earthly treasure, any amount of assets that we could have acquired for ourselves. You're not being fair or wise when you try to match your effort or commitment to the level of your compensation or recognition from your earthly employer. You're being ungrateful to the Lord Jesus, who laid down every right, every privilege, all the glory to his name to walk the earth and serve the needs of of his people who were perishing in their sin, to die for sin that was not his own, to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that we might receive what we could not earn and did not deserve. And if Christ is Lord, he is Lord over your earthly compensation. You know that he determines your salary? It might seem like HR does, but the Lord is the one who determines the salary. Is he not capable and committed to give you what you need? Would God, not, or would God, who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, would he withhold anything that you truly need to live for the glory of Christ and be faithful to Christ in this life? If you don't have it, Christian, that job, that raise, that recognition, it might be because God is a good father and Christ is a good shepherd and will not give you what you don't need. To be discontent, to complain, To qualify your work is to say that Christ has not done enough for you. That Christ is not adequately caring for you. That Jesus is a poor shepherd and a sorry savior and a lazy Lord. Instead, we are to work knowing that from the Lord we will receive the inheritance. And that is enough. Christ is enough. It's not wrong to want to save up wisely, to leave an abundance to your children after you. That's a good impulse in many ways, but... The way I've heard it, quite frankly, from many Christians today, many Christian leaders today, you think that leaving bountiful possessions and good earthly institutions to your children, to generations after you, is the Christian hope. It's a good thing, but it's not the Christian hope. It's not even a distinctly Christian hope. Every unbeliever desires to do that. What is the Christian hope for generations in Paul's letter to the Colossians? Not anything of earthly value at all. It's inheritance of the saints in light, a hope laid up in heaven, a hope of glory. That's what even a Christian slave will possess with certainty. That's what even a Christian slave is qualified to receive by God the Father. That's what even a Christian slave can seek to pass on to his children by God's grace. That's what Christian parents labor to leave for generations after them, a better inheritance, a heavenly inheritance, a sure inheritance, a beautiful inheritance. And it's one that's not earned by your work, but rather which energizes you and propels you to work every day in any occupation for the glory of Christ. What motivates you first, Paul says, is not the desire to achieve it, to earn it, but the knowledge that you will receive it because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. It's wages, but not yours. It's what Jesus earned by taking the form of a slave, becoming obedient in everything to the will of the Father in his earthly ministry, even to the point of death on the cross. For us, it's an inheritance left by us, left to us by one who has died and is now alive and now reigns and, and lives to intercede for us so that we may have what we need and attain to this resurrection from the dead as he was raised. 
So the manner of your work is to be like Christ, whether master or employee or slave. There, the, the end of or the beginning of chapter four. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The manner of your work is to be like Christ, who humbled himself, obeyed in everything, willingly endured mistreatment, joyfully served his people and even his enemies, and his and the hateful authorities over him. The object of your work is Christ. It is him that you serve. The goal of your work is Christ. It is in all, whatever you do, in the name of the Lord Jesus, serving the Lord Christ for his glory and his gospel, soli deo gloria before all men. And the reward of your work is Christ. An inheritance you will receive from him and with him your heavenly master. The hope of glory. I promise you, if you go to work as a master or a slave, as an employee or an employer, with those things in your heart, with those truths at the front of your mind, there is not a job on this planet that will not be filled for you with fulfillment and untouchable joy. It will not be futile. It will be fruitful. You will bear much fruit in keeping with repentance to the glory of his name. It will not be pointless but productive for the sake of the kingdom of God. And it will not be overlooked by the Lord on the last day. As he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful slave. If you'd bow with me. Father, I thank you that you have given us your word, which speaks so clearly to us, which speaks on everything that pertains to life and godliness, which transforms us into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to the next, which equips us and makes us complete for every good work. God, I pray that in our earthly work, we would serve as as faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, putting others before ourselves, humbling ourselves even to those who are below us positionally. God, working in a way that, that fears you, that proclaims the fear of the Lord and the Lordship of Christ and salvation in Christ. God, I pray that we would meditate on your work, on your coming, God, in a way that would motivate us, Lord, to be faithful ambassadors for your kingdom, for the glory of our Lord. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.